Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A report was published Monday by Phoenix radio station KJZZ summarizing 12 months of inspection reports of the kitchens in Arizona's 16 state prisons. Roach infestations were recorded in more than half of the facilities, including at Iman State Prison, where an inspector noted that a heated storage cabinet was, quote, out of service for being infested with cockroaches, unquote. At Lewis Prison, an inspector made a bi-weekly note of a roach problem at each inspection for nearly a year while continuing to rate the kitchen as satisfactory, allowing it to continue to serve food. By September 2020, the inspector wrote, quote, roaches starting to get bad, unquote, and gave a rating of satisfactory. Alexandria Hunt, who was incarcerated at Perryville facility for five years, spoke to KJZZ about her experience working in various kitchens, including the main kitchen serving the general population. She reported, quote, gigantic rats everywhere, as well as rat feces in the food, storage areas, and all over the trays, unquote. Hunt also reported what she alleged was a widespread and frequent practice of both cooking with expired food and marking food with false expiration dates in preparation for inspections. After officers threatened her with a disciplinary action for attempting to throw away moldy bread rather than serve it, Hunt ate from only the commissary for the last seven months of her incarceration, costing her approximately $450 a month. The inspection reports acquired by KJZZ also include mentions of the kitchen bathrooms at nearly every facility lacking soap, paper towels, and toilet paper. Due to prisoner organizing, conditions in Arizona facilities are becoming more public. Last year, prisoners from three Arizona facilities reported being forced to serve rotten meat to fellow inmates, after which there was an outbreak of foodborne illness. And this March, there was a wide hunger strike at the Florence State Prison, protesting inedible food and unsanitary conditions. Prison food has been a national subject of debate in recent years, as advocates have drawn attention to what they claim is a hushed and inhumane form of punishment, one which often flies under the regulatory radar. A report published last year by Impact Justice presented the first ever national survey of incarcerated diets. The report drew connections between the small portions of poor quality processed food and the epidemic of chronic diseases seen in inmates. The report discussed the prevalence of stomach inflammation, E. coli, and a weakened immune system in an environment already heavy with infectious disease pressure. Tuberculosis, for example, is four times more likely to be contracted inside. The report also highlighted the science connecting limited, unhealthy food with mental health issues, malnutrition, bone and tooth loss, heart disease, and thyroid dysregulation. According to a separate 2017 study published in the American Journal of the College of Cardiology, incarcerated people are three times more likely to develop heart disease and face significantly higher rates of stroke, diabetes, asthma, and in general, chronic disease. We share stories today from two people reflecting on their time inside and on reentry. Both have wise words about surviving incarceration and on the broader political context of prisons. First is David Campbell, a former political prisoner at Rikers Island in New York. We'll hear more from him later, but today he discusses his case, his sentencing, and how he organized his time inside and the rigors of cell searches. Next, we hear from Spirit Mike, who survived more than a decade inside Florida prisons. 
In particular, Spirit Mike thinks through the broader systems prison is embedded in and how he is fighting back against disempowerment and exclusion through urban farming. Here they are. My name is David Campbell. I'm a former anti-fascist political prisoner here in New York. Um, it's like still kind of wild, still kind of strange to me that that's the case. But when I had my case and I realized I was going to do time, you know, I had all this awesome support. Like I had a, I had a defense committee support crew that is so cool. They are the best people in the world. And, you know, this term was being tossed around in meetings, political prisoner. And I was like, you know, I don't know. Is that an exaggeration? You know, sometimes like, you know, anarchists or whatever, maybe they, you know, they're going too far. But, you know, I looked up like, I guess, what is it? The European Commission on Human Rights and like Amnesty International's definitions of political prisoner. And I was like, oh no, that's like, yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. <laughs> like I have a really hard sentence for what I did and there's like no real good reason except it's a political thing, right? So speaking of which, I was, I was arrested in uh, January, 2018 at a counter protest to an alt-right event in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan, in New York City. I was arrested during a brawl. So uh, we'd just been protesting and it was, it was actually really, boring. It was a really uneventful protest. Um, and then about 10, 20 at night popped off and it turned into a brawl. It was maybe like five on five, six on six about that. And those of us who are anti-Trump were wearing black blocks or wearing hoodie, you know, black hoodie faces covered. The folks on the other side were wearing suits and a cop came around the corner in the middle of it. And, you know, there were no cops present when this fight started, but in the middle of this brawl, a cop came around the corner and I happen to be the closest person to him. He sees a guy, you know, with a black bandana on his face and a black hoodie on, fighting a guy in a suit. You know, he's also a cop, so he probably has his his personal biases. You know, who do you think he grabs, right? So, so he grabbed me. Um, he didn't say stop police or anything like that, um, and threw me to the ground. Um, he's a very big guy. He's like easily twice as as big as me, um, and broke my leg in two places when he did that. Um, my tibia. Yeah, and then charged me with all kinds of stuff, partly probably to justify his use of force, partly because there was a guy on the other side that was knocked out. He was lying unconscious on the ground. And, you know, it was like an easy... Well, they, they had to arrest someone for it, right? And they'd already arrested me. So I was like, okay, well, you know, he did all these things. And ultimately, you know, I fought my case for almost two years because um, they were really going hard on me. And ultimately, I had to take a non-cooperating plea deal to do uh, some time because the top charge was gang assault, which is really hard to beat. It's like anytime there are three or more people involved in a fight, it's a gang as three and a half year mandatory minimum. So it's a very vague law with a very strict mandatory minimum. So like, you know, basically when I get, got down to the wire, my lawyer is like, yeah, I mean, you know, and not just my lawyer, like I consulted with lots of lawyers. My lawyer was very forgiving that I wanted to like talk to all these other like fancy lawyers, <laughs> like, you know, didn't get upset about this. Um, but, you know, I talked to like a ton of lawyers and I had a really good lawyer that I talked to a lot. And when it came down to it, it was like, you can go to trial and your odds are maybe 50-50, right? And if you lose, you're going to do three and a half years at least, right? And then you're going to have at least as long on parole, right? So like a not unreasonable scenario, totally hypothetical, but I can go to trial, lose, get sentenced to four years in prison and have four years parole, right? So counting the two years I just wasted fighting this case, that's a decade of my life, right? Like I get what I wanna do, I'm not doing that. And they really wanted me to talk about who I was with. That was a big thing. I didn't know anybody, so it's like, well, that's easy. But like, <laughs> it was also just kinda of like, 
they wanted me to do the work for them. Because when I was arrested, there was a big crowd of people, like, you know. And when I was arrested, there were all these people still standing around. It's not like everyone ran away. It was one person who ran away. You can see it on camera. They just go, like, God knows where they went. But everybody else was still there. So, like, you know, now they want to know who all these people are. <laughs> it's like, dude, you should have done your job when you were uh, arresting people. You know, I'm definitely not going to do it for you. But, it, you know, it's not like I could have. You know, they, I told them I didn't know anybody. I mean, it was a protest, right? It's not like, you know, we're all best buddies. Uh, they, they wanted me to, like, sit down and look at footage and try and identify people. And it's like, nah, it's like, yeah. Once they got over that hump, like, they realized that it was serious about that. Then they started making offers that were still shitty, but were something that I could have lived with. And what I ultimately pled to was um, attempted gang assaults and assault with an instrument. Uh, the instrument is my sneaker. I was wearing a, a very lightweight mesh top sneaker. Uh, Nike Roche 1, I think it's called. It's a nice looking sneaker. It's like very lightweight. It's actually advertised as being able to be worn with, with or without socks. But, you know, so like they didn't have to charge. Like I was wearing this when I kicked the guy. I kicked the guy who was knocked unconscious while he was down on the ground twice. I didn't push him to the ground. I didn't him up. But I went over, you know, while people were kicking him. And I got a couple of cheap shots and it wasn't really something I thought about. It's just something I did. And, um, and that was what they got me on. So for those two kicks, they gave me attempted gang assault and assault with an instrument, instrument being my sneaker, and sentenced me to 18 months uh, in Rikers. Yeah, which is like, okay, you know, if you get in a street fight or whatever, you know, I mean, what's like, what, what would you give somebody for a street fight? I don't know, like, unless somebody's been really f***ed up, you give them like maybe 30 days or something, you know, I don't know. Um, but not 18 months, you know, that's crazy. And actually, when I got in, like all the inmates who kind of knew more about the jail system and what people tends to get sentenced to. I mean, really everyone inside knew more about the jail system than me, the jail and court system, right? Really anyone who knew anything uh, among inmates or COs about, you know, what sort of sentences people tend to get was just like shocked and sometimes outraged. Including some COs were like, that's ridiculous. Like, I can't believe they give you that much time. And, and the questions people would usually ask me to try and like figure out why I'd gotten such a stiff sentence. Like, was the guy seriously up, the guy who was knocked out? It's like, well, he went to the ER. He was knocked unconscious, he went to the ER. But he was drunk as He woke up in the ER and was trying to fight with the cops to go home before they wanted him to go, right? So like, he wasn't really that up. Some small fractures on one side of his face. But um, he's fine. Do you have a record? No. And did you plan it out? No, like it just kind of happened, right? So those are, the, those are questions I was always encountering. Like when guys are trying to like, they're like scratching their heads and like trying to make sense of like why they really went hard on me. And you know, it was just obvious that it was, I was the only opportunity they had to make an example of someone for engaging in, you know, far left violence or Antifa thuggery or whatever. So that's, that's what it did. So I do identify as a, as a former political prisoner because I'm no longer a prisoner. Made it out, pretty cool. Been out for three months, almost. I'm still kind of counting time in like a jail way, which is like, you know, I've been out for 60 days and two weeks. It's like, you know, it's like, <laughs> um, there are a few habits that, you know, are, are kind of like, they, they hang around longer than I thought. I mean, I wasn't away for that long. I was in for 12 months, a year, a straight year, 360 days, because I did five days in custody when I was originally arrested. Um, so I did a flat year on Rikers Island. You know, it's not super long, but it's enough to where coming out like it's been a it's been an adjustment phase and then also the world has changed a lot right like <laughs> 2020 you know <laughs> it's just like i don't know i feel a bunch of ways about it i have friends that are like what a time to
be locked up, right? Because you're not going to miss anything. Like, there's no FOMO, right? It's like, that's true. Like, on the other hand, I missed a lot, you know? It's like, maybe not things that, yeah. I mean, like, like a lot of, like, social life stuff, right, has been shut down. So I haven't missed any of that, you know? Like, no concerts I didn't get to go to, right? But a lot of other stuff that, like, has, has changed things pretty pretty fundamentally has happened in the past year. So that's that's been like an extra level of, of adjustment, even though it didn't do that much time. It's like, well, okay, the world has changed a lot though <laughs> in the past, uh, past 12 months. I think there are, there are two types of like stories I'm hearing about people's like lockdown experience, which is like, uh, I've got a great routine and I've like learned to introspect and like I've become extremely productive and like, I just like can't f deal. And I lie around all day and like, even when I'm at work, I'm in my pajamas, right? So like, and most are a mix of both, which like fair, but I, I'd argue that you see the same in inside. I did at least in jail. I don't know if it's different, maybe in prison where people are doing longer sentences. Yeah. Where I was, it's like some guys just sleep the day away, which I, I think that's pretty common to incarcerated folks, right? Like a lot of folks just sleep their fucking bids away, which fair. I mean, I told this one kid, I like sleeping all day. I was like, yeah, you sleep a lot. He's like, yeah, because when I sleep, I feel like I'm time traveling. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you kind of are, you know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> fair point. So I, I do like sleep, but I, I, for me, I was more one of those guys were like, okay, having a way to figure out my own schedule, make it my own, stick to it. And a schedule that was based around doing things that were important to me, right? That had nothing to do with the institutional schedule. That had nothing to do with, you know, you know what I mean? The stuff that I chose to do. That was what got me through it. And that was actually super cool. And that's like, it's been harder to do that out here because I'm still adjusting. And there are other distractions out here, right? Like there's the internet. You know, I have to make choices about like what kind of food I'm going to eat and what clothing I'm going to wear. It's like, you know, it's all kinds of stuff. I have a social life again, right? So like, it's it's a, a little less simple. Like life inside is much simpler in a lot of ways. Uh, in a lot of ways, but um, yeah, for me it was like getting getting a routine. Well, I say a routine, but I should say like is so fucked up, <laughs> Rikers. Like you cannot count on anything. I don't know, man. Like you cannot. You just you can never get comfortable. I had a friend, Perk. Big shout out to Perk. <laughs> Guy's great. Uh, yeah, we're still friends. You know, Perk would always say that, it's, that's one thing I learned in jail, man. You can never get comfortable. Like, you know, meaning, I don't think he meant physically. You know, I never took it that way. That's also kind of true. But like, you know, you just like, you might have a nice little setup and you have a nice little routine and then like something happens, man. It could be anything. It could be just like, they're shuffling people around, right? And your name came across somebody's desk. And like, yeah, that one. Or you could have a fight, right? You know, just any number. There could be a pandemic, right? Like <laughs> any number of things could happen and you are going to like go to a different housing unit that cool piece of contraband that was making your time so much easier is going to get taken away something that's not contraband is going to get taken away you know it's just like they're just like quick and dirty at rikers with everything like the the policies the rules they're all just like they're just floating around in the air they're just pulling them out of the air as they feel like it and making up other ones and you know it's a it's all nonsense you know what i mean so it's really you know it's it's hard to get a routine but i, I say that kind of shorthand for to like, you know, 12 times I developed a routine based on, you know, yard time. Yard time was huge. I like to get out to the yard every day, right? Because I like fresh air, I like exercise, like that's really important to me. So 
you know, yard time was like 2 p.m. for months. And then it switched to 6 p.m. And 6 p.m. was the last time slot after all the other housing units go in the yard. So if they have a fight, they have an alarm, they have a lockdown, well, you get pushed back to 6.30, 7, 7.30. Sometimes you're going out of the yard when it's already dark out, right? Stay that way for a couple months. And then for the last month of my bid, yard time was like 7 in the morning. So like, what? yeah, I mean, what do you do? Like, <laughs> I So you said I'm saying I have to kind of roll. Yeah. Yeah, I have to kind of roll with the institutional schedule. And it's always changing in there over and over again. It's the same thing with searches. So again, I've never been to prison. But, but guys that had done prison time in Rikers, you know, would talk about how upstate, you know, uh, they don't do searches like that. You know, and Rikers, they're f- bugged out, as they say, with the searches. Like, they're bugged the fuck out. Like, they really... So, the standard was like once a month you have a search, right? That's not terrible. But, you know, the process of a search is unpleasant. They come in, you just sit on your bed, face the wall, um, and then, you know, no talking. They're going to take you in the bathroom in groups of like five, strip search you, um, and then you go wait in the day room uh, while they call people out and have them sit by their beds and watch while they trash all your right? They're gonna dig through your stuff, pile it on your bed, um, and just kind of random things that they're not sure if you're supposed to have it or not, they're gonna take it, you know what I mean? Most of the time. So, you know, that happens once a month and you just pick everything back up and you put it back where it belongs. And it's like just over and over again, you know, it's just this constant cycle. You know, and like the COs who do the searches are not the COs that work in the floor, like working in your housing unit that you have some rapport with usually, some familiarity with, right? I mean, even if you don't like them, you know them somewhat, right? So like, as soon as the search team leaves and all your shit's in a pile, let's say you had like an extra, what they call a bucket in Rikers. Bucket's just a plastic Tupperware bin, but like one of the big ones, you know, like, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 gallons, I'm just guessing here, but like, you know, you're supposed to get two of those. Let's say you had three, right? So they took one away. You just go up to the floor officer and be like, hey, can I get an extra bucket? It's like, yeah, sure. And they give it right back to you. Like, honestly, sometimes it's a different CO, but they're just giving you the thing that was just confiscated because it's contraband. You know, like, mm-hmm. it's just completely Sisyphean. That's the word I always think of. It's like, okay, well, guess what? I got to pass the time anyway. So, yeah, I'm going to organize my colored pencils again. Like, what else do I have to do? You know? But yeah, they, sometimes there'd be two searches a week, man. It's crazy. And any hour a day, I mean, usually between like eight and six, but like really could be any time. They just open up the door, gentlemen, on the search. And it's just like, oh my God. All right. How often? Sometimes for, for a period of time, for two periods of, of time, it was twice a week, um, which is, I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, every four or five days, your is just trash tossed in a pile. Um, you know, and imagine something like, uh, like a t-shirt or something, right. That you're allowed to have just gets confiscated because they don't care. Right. It's like, there's no oversight. So, well, when in doubt, just take it. Mm-hmm. Imagine trying to get that back. Like, it's never going to happen. Right. So, you know, that, that adds up, you know what I mean? But usually it's about once a month, For some reason or other, probably they with somebody, probably they knew somebody in the dorm had like weed or like a knife or something, and they were trying to to create division in the dorm so that somebody would talk about who had what, or so that the person would get rid of it, right? Like that's that's what always was talked about when it was when those two periods during my 12 months inside that we had 
two searches a day, uh, two searches a week. You know what I mean? Really intensive search. It was like, oh, they're they're trying to squeeze somebody, right? Like, they're, they're trying to squeeze somebody. But usually about once a month. One of the benefits of COVID was we didn't have any searches for three months straight. That was great. That was really great. But then the first search after three months was because I built up so much stuff. I also, yeah, like I had so, and they just came in. They were like, oh my God. They were, they were having a field day. Cause you know, it's like a sick pleasure and just like, see what you got in here. Oh, yeah. You know, just throwing shit over your shoulder. Like they went crazy at three months, no searches. Oh my God. So yeah. They went nuts. Yeah. A lot of times it's just business, but I think that one was pretty sadistic. You know, a lot of times I don't think, you know, I mean, it's, it's like the banality of evil is that something people say. It's like, yeah, just doing your job is like, up dude but i understand that like you know your intentions are not that bad it's just like the function you're carrying out kind of mechanically but still it's like it's pretty up you know mm -hmm. i had a guy search my bed once who was like just seemed like the nicest guy he was like i got you bro and like he actually like let me have some things i wasn't supposed like he saw things that i wasn't supposed to have nothing like workout gloves and but he like left them you know he didn't take them and like i appreciate you not taking those, but also you can't really say I got you and then just like take all my shit and dump it in a pile. <laughs> like, you know, like the, the circumstances themselves are pretty up, right? Even if you like cut some corners, you know, I appreciate it, but still it doesn't mean we're friends, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah. I want to introduce myself all the way to the degree. Now, um, back in back when I was younger, I was I was uh, in the streets. I was what they call a shooter, you know. So I all you know, conflict always ended in gunplay. But and uh, it took it took me going to it took me at first cleaning up my my life on the street, but the ramifications of my life came back even after I left the street and I still end up getting 15 years in prison and 10 years on probation for shooting a guy in the chest. And when I got there, I knew immediately that I couldn't keep my mind. I knew immediately. So I started getting into college courses because why? Because when I looked around, the people were on the same level that what I just left. I was trying not to get there. I was trying to, I was trying to come from there. The people I looked around was the same on the same uh, bull level. The core message I want to get, uh, I wanted to uh, go to the guys and gals there, is out here, out here, and in there on the music and so forth. That push the culture of do anything for money, do anything for money. So that's the culture that they push. While you are there, you have to, you have to, you have to expand yourself of that notion, because before, because out here, in order, in order to cut through a lot of, of life, how you say, pockets of evil. You have to you have to have a standard of what you will not do under any circumstance. They told us when we get wealth, leave our community. And when we do leave our community, because if you're a good person, you don't have to run. Because you've been there all your life, you know. So you get, you get money, you leave. You get, so who do the kids have to look up to? after you leave. So you have to look around and see what is damaging your community. And you have to fix it. That's the job. That is the job of the wise. 
that is the job of the people that they count themselves as religious folk. But most some and most don't. So, you know, those that that are bred to trailblaze areas that, that other people are scared of, we have to do. We have to we have to be able to, you know, be strong within ourselves to go to talk to people that sometimes don't want to talk. You know? And and fortunately a lot of the men and a lot of the women like myself that, that has been incarcerated are coming out with strength in their spine and being able to carry on the message of we have to grow our own food because if we don't there won't they they do not care about our nutritional health because they would take the they wouldn't take the nutrition out of the, our diet in order to give us pills. You see what I'm saying? And here's the tip. For less than thirty dollars a gallon get what is called fish emulsion. That is fish waste. That's hydroponic solution in a bottle, and and you can once you do the dilution of one tablespoon per gallon, you can grow anything on this planet. So don't let nobody fool you that you whether you got a green thumb or not. You get a couple key tools, and you can grow anything on this planet. You do a right order, and you can grow anything whether you are novice or not. So, so growing food is not to be intimidated. Right now, if you get, if you secure you an acre and a half, and you do a minimum of research of the market gardener system by a freshman named Fortier, it's called the market gardener system. You get an acre and a half, and every person that have an acre and a half and use that system, they can make a hundred to one hundred and twenty thousand a year. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna, I got to say this also. So the whole time I've been talking, I've been telling you that we have been miseducated. So, and if you understand that, and I'm pretty sure by now you do, then you understand that they that they demonize the role of cook. I'm an avid cook. I love to cook. I'm a nutritionist cook. I, I, you know, I lost 65 pounds eating the right food and not working out a lick. But just eating the right food by myself, and I, and I, 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 yeah, I'm 42 and I look like I'm 30. A cook is one of the most powerful positions in a kingdom. Do you know why? Because a cook dictates the longevity and the short-term life of the people they cook for. Do you understand that? So, I want you guys to evaluate everything you have ever been taught. They told you money over everything. How can the how can money be over the love of a son for his mother? The love of a mother for their child. They telling you that you should be able to sacrifice your that your love of your life for something that has intrinsically no value. It's intrinsically worth nothing now. It's only worth because they say it's worth. And you're going to give up the love of your life in your heart, in your song, in your mind for that. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. 
We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.